and welcome to Triathlete Live here in Boulder, Colorado. My name is Emma Kate Lidberry. I am joined today by the six-time Ironman world champion, Mr. Mark Allen. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. You're at home in Santa Cruz, right? I am. Like like many of us, just kind of still hunkered down at home. And uh, amazingly, October 10th would have been uh, Ironman in a couple of days. I'm not in Kona. And uh, it's a very, very different rhythm this year, as as we all know and see. But it's it's great to um, at least be aware of it and be thinking about the Big Island and thinking about the races that have taken place there and of the ones that will in the future. So, yeah. So we were just uh, talking off camera just right short, shortly before we just came online, and uh, you were saying this is the first year since 1982 that you've not been on the Big Island at this point in the at this point in October. Well, it was actually 1985. Since 1982, which was the first Sorry. year that I that I, that I did Ironman, there was there was only one other um, Ironman Hawaii where I did not, I was not there, and that was an interesting story. It was in 1985. Um, all of the pro, the top athletes, the got together, and we went to Ironman and said, "Hey, look, you know, every other professional race, big race around the world, has prize money." The Ironman doesn't have any prize money, and it's a huge commitment to try and, you know, do the training and, and get fit and, and to just show up there in shape to have a good race. So we said, you know, you got to put some prize money in there or else we don't show up. And they said, fine, then don't show up. Well, Scott Tinley was the only pro who showed up. <laughs> he won the race. Um, to his to his credit, he, he actually broke the world's record that that day. Uh, which maybe he races better with less pressure. But anyway, um, amazingly then in 1996, the Ironman had uh, prize money for the first time and ever since then. So it kind of worked. Yeah, there you go. A note for today's pros perhaps. But um, So you've been there every year otherwise. And uh, so is there anything you're doing this week to, apart from joining us, obviously, is there anything you're doing this week to mark the, to mark the week? Yeah, there's. I mean, there's been a, a lot of different kind of virtual celebrations of of Ironman, and and this week Ironman has a, a daily show that that's been going on that uh, they've had me on a couple times, and I'll, I'll be on a few more times. So it's you know it's kind of like reliving some of the past and uh, telling stories of you know what it's like this year to not be having a world championship and. Um, you know, for me as a coach, it's it's been an interesting year for my athletes because, as you know, without races, a lot of athletes are like, well, you know, what am I training for? <laughs> you know, and and uh, you know, kind of the the mantra this year for all the people I work with and and athletes around the world has just been, you know, find a different um, uh, satisfaction out of the training, other than having it be that you've got to go to a race to feel like, okay, I'm getting something out of this. And the athletes actually have really embraced that. And they're realizing, you know, they want to keep swimming and cycling and running because not only does it keep you fit, but it helps you to just feel better and to reduce stress and to just have that time during a workout where uh, you're not really having to worry about COVID and maybe how it's affected your job or affected your racing or, you know, affected your family's life. And so it's it's been a, a real eye-opener for a lot of athletes who 
thought, you know, the reason that they were training was to be competitive, but now they're realizing the reason that they're training is that each and every day when they do swim and bike and run and do their strength training and do their core work and all that, they just feel better. And that's, that's really priceless because going forward, I think it's going to show that it's going to change people's relationship to actual racing itself. I, I think they will probably feel a little bit less pressure because it's like, okay, I've, 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 I've done the journey of training and I already feel like this was so worthwhile. And if I can get to the start line, that's just going to be like icing on the cake. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So tell us a little bit about your coaching setup. You have your own coaching business. You coach, you've coached pros, you've coached, you've coached a whole host of age groupers. Tell us a little bit about that and how that works. Yeah, I started coaching. Um, actually the last year that I raced, I got, <laughs> I got a, an email from a guy in Chicago who said, Hey, will you coach me? And I thought, okay. And so, um, you know, back then it was like, uh, putting workouts on a spreadsheet and printing them out and sending them to the guy in the mail. And that's kind of in how, mail. Awesome. yeah, mail. If you, <laughs> it's, it's like, a, you got to put a stamp on a thing in an envelope and, you know, write the name on it. And so, um, I, that slowly built over the years and finally got to a point like, okay, I can't physically create the training plans for people. I don't have enough time to do, to carry any more people than I did at that moment. And so I, I kind of went a different direction and uh, created a software that generates the training plans for me. And it, it sort of is like I program the way my brain thinks so that, you know, it just takes a lot of the the heavy lifting off of my plate as far as, how I, what I give to my athletes and everything is delivered online. And I launched this uh, sort of new phase of things back in 2001, which was right at the bottom of a huge dot-com crash. And people were like, what are you doing launching an online business right now? And I ended up actually making money that very first year. And so that's, and now it's ironic because, you know, basically 20 years later, everything is delivered online, you know, every yeah. training plan. I mean, I, I bet there's not one coach out there who's sending their athletes spreadsheets that they printed out and, and they're getting it in the mail, you know? So I would like uh, to hear about that if there is, cause we, yeah. would do, we would do a story on that for sure. Waiting by the mailbox for your, for your workouts for the week. Yeah. But, so I, that'd be kind of cute actually, but it, um, it what do you think has changed since then? I mean, and what of the new technology do you think is worthwhile? And, you know, because there's so much now, like we are, we are swamped with it, right? Um, when it comes to training tech and data and what, how, how's it changed since then? And, and what do you consider worthwhile now? What do you use? Yeah, you know, when I raced, it was uh, the most technology I had was my heart rate monitor, a speedometer on my bike and my stopwatch, you know, my, on my, on my wrist. Of course, now we've, you know, you have uh, power meters and oximeters and, you know, things to measure your oxygen saturation levels and, you know, heart rate variability and just all of these different things to measure what's going on in your body. And they can be sort of a great thing or they can just weigh you down. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's, I think the more stuff that you measure you know, yes, you can fine tune your training based on what you're seeing with certain numbers. Uh, you can measure progress or lack of progress. You can kind of gauge like, okay, this number says today, I actually probably should take it easy and not do that hard track workout that I had planned. Mm-hmm. Um, and so all of these numbers are good for, especially for somebody who's 
maybe uh, doesn't have a lot of experience in the sport so that they can start to kind of match a feeling that their body has, a sensation that they have in their body to something that says, yeah, today you're fresh or today you're not fresh. You know, you are getting faster. You're not. But eventually over time, I think athletes get pretty good at just tuning into how their body is reacting, responding, feeling, and what those feelings mean. Mm-hmm. And you kind of become like this encyclopedia of experience over the years of, of, okay, this feels this way. And the last time it did, I got sick, you know, so you back off instead of getting sick. Um, but you can be a slave to the numbers, you know, and, and the numbers don't tell you everything. And, you know, just think about it. Like when you're in a race, yes, you might have your strategy of your, you know, how much power you're going to put and what pace you want to run and, and, you know, how many strokes a minute you're going to be doing in the water and all that kind of stuff. But it still takes that human element to make it all work, mm-hmm. you know? So it's like, how do you, how do you measure passion or commitment or internal strength? How do you measure, you know, your love for the sport? Uh, you know, just all these things that are so real and affect your, not only your training, but your racing that if, if people sort of just ignore those things and only look at numbers, to, you know, like you get up in the morning, it's like, you got to look at your watch to see if you're happy or not. You know, that's, it's, <laughs> you can take it too far. And so it, it's, it's, the technology is great, but it also has to be, um, the athletes I think can get equal amounts of improvement if they also tune into sort of just their intuitive sense about themselves. And, um, you know, a, as you do that, then a lot of times what you find is that, in the races, you're actually able to kind of go beyond the numbers mm-hmm. of what you, what you thought you could do. And how do you, as a coach, how do you, with and working with athletes, so many of whom, you know, in the world we live in, so many people are dialed into data and they rely on that. You know, like they say, like you're, like you're saying, look at your watch to see if you're happy mm-hmm. or not. How do you, how do you help an athlete or how do you help coach an athlete who might need to learn how to read those, you know, to dial in those things, you know, if they're so reliant on data and data analysis. Yeah. Well, like for example, for me, you know, as kind of a a remote coach, you know, there's basically I I coach people all over the world. And so if somebody's in Brazil, I can't, I can't look in their eyes in the morning and see that they're bloodshot and they've got bags under their eyes. And, you know, the athlete might have sort of a mediocre workout and, you know, I'll, I'll ask them all, I'll look at the numbers and see something's off and and I'll go, well, how, how'd you feel today? Oh, I felt good. You know, that's just because they don't know what good really feels like. Mm -hmm. And so I can, I I can look at kind of different patterns of how they are progressing or not progressing based on how they should be. And it's very easy, very quickly to spot something that's starting to go wrong. And so it's like, I'll go, you know, have you been getting enough sleep? Are you under stressed? You know, because this is what I'm seeing in, in based on your numbers. And so right away, they see that, uh-huh, this, this outside observer who is probably looking at them with a little more objectivity than they can mm-hmm. is seeing something. And so then they also start to tune into that and go, oh, yeah, you know, I, I have had three days in a row where my legs are just like burning right out of the gates. And so then we can cut stuff back right away. And so, you know, usually uh, as a coach working with an athlete, it's not that you it's rare that you have to actually give them more. Mm-hmm. It's more common that you often have to put on the brakes. I mean, as you know, triathletes are 
kind of like type AAA and, and they want to, they want to go hard all the time. And, uh, the best, yeah, the best coaches know how to rein you in, not, not give you more. Right. So, yeah. And, and you know, it's, it sort of goes back to that thing of COVID and, and what are you really training for, you know? And, um, yeah. it's like, it's, it's fun to be the, the champion of the day, every day of the week with your training partners, but you know, in the end, when there are races, it is nice to have that really satisfying peak performance. And, and a lot of that does take just having a little bit more patience and mm-hmm. slowing it down, temper your, your efforts so that you, you dose out those hard workouts in the right way at the right time, dose out those, those long workouts in the right way at the right time, taper for the races, which is something that is, that's the one of the biggest missing uh, pieces this year is that um, people are basically training the same day in and day out and day in and day out. They don't have any of that tapering down where they actually let their body absorb all the training they're doing. You know, without a race, you just kind of don't taper. And so it's right. people have been kind of like maybe doing a little bit too much because they don't have that rest that they would normally. And so I've actually taken that in, into consideration and had my athletes cut back on their volume, cut back on their, their speed work that they normally would be doing for whatever distance race they like to prepare for. And it's, and it's helped keep them healthier and and fresh. And, you know, I think the, you know, the the people that are going to do great in 2021 are those who trained consistently, but conservatively this year and, and are fresh physically and mentally when it's like, okay, it's go time now, let's get back on it. Yeah, it will be interesting to see that next year, I think. You know, when we get to the middle of next year, it'll be uh, once the season is, you know, hopefully once the season is underway, it'll be very interesting and very telling, I think. But, mm-hmm. okay, um, Pablo wants to know, how do you manage athletes that want to go hard all the time? Well, I tell them my story of going hard all the time, which was how I trained like the first about two years of my career. Because I came from a swimming background. Uh, I was a, a, an age group swimmer all the way from the time I was 10 through the end of college. And back in the 70s and 80s, when I was swimming, you know, the coaches three in the pool and they gave you the hardest workout they could dream up and you'd do it as hard as you could and you'd come back the next day and do the same thing over again. And, you know, there was no concept of base building in the sense of building an aerobic base. There was volume volume-based building, but there was no concept of like, take it easier, do, do stuff moderately. And so anyway, when I got into triathlon, I was like that. I just thought every swim, bike and run workout, you got it at some point, go as fast as you're going to go in the race. Even if it's for the last half mile of a five mile run, you know, you drop it down to a five minute pace because that's what the, the boys are going to be running in those Olympic distance events. And, you know, you do that for a while, you will get faster, you will get more fit, but Mm -hmm it also takes a toll on your body. And so I could see that I actually had some good race results, but then after events, I was getting sick every time. And then I started getting these little niggling injuries that would hamper me from really doing the the amount of training that I wanted to do. And finally, you know, I was introduced to Phil Maffetone, who was doing a lot of uh, groundbreaking work with heart rate training. And he got me to stick on a heart rate monitor and to train aerobically, which meant I had to slow my running pace down by almost three minutes a mile. Um, And in doing that, I was running, I was about 25 at the time. I was running slower than guys twice my age were going to be doing in their races. So I thought, you know, how is this going to work? Well, I just, you know, somehow I decided, let me just give this a, 
a run and see how it works. And he said, train aerobically for the next month. And then at the end of that, I was going to actually have a half Ironman distance race on Kauai. And I went into the race. I only did one speed work in each, each sport the week before the event. Mm-hmm. And I crushed and I felt so good and so strong and I recovered quickly. And I thought, okay, there's something to this. And so, you know, I, I kind of just share those stories of how, you know, I had to walk up every hill, uh, you know, in the beginning to keep my heart rate from going through the roof. When I was doing my runs, I had to slow to a barely a jog at the end of my long runs. You know, I had to go through that whole process like everybody else. Mm -hmm. But in the end, you know, I was able to actually run a five and a half minute mile and stay aerobic. And then I had this huge reserve that the other guys didn't have in the races when we were really pushing the pace. So I I think it, you know, I have that, um, I guess you'd say maybe personal credibility to have most of my athletes have the confidence to say, okay, all right, let me give this a try. You know, after they started to try to fudge for the first month that they're working with me and push it a little bit too hard every workout. And finally they kind of go, all right, let me just try this, you know, and then literally like two weeks into it, they're like, wow, you know, I feel actually good after my workouts and I'm, right. I, I'm actually getting a little better and I don't have to stop and, and walk as much. I can actually run through the whole workout now or, or bike a little bit faster. And, and then eventually, you know, when they, this year they don't have them, but it, you know, when they do race, they see that the results are like astounding. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. I think people are probably willing to trust you based on, based on past results too. So. Uh, one question we have from social was, anyth- is there anything that you see being done now that feels like something old being called something new? That's not too cryptic of a question. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, I know. I know what that. Um, you know, the, it seems like training goes through cycles. Like for a while, people do dial into, okay, let's let's really have our athletes kind of work on that aerobic base thing. And, and that, that actually started for a while um, back when um, Lance Armstrong came back from cancer, because as you know, uh, when he first came back, his body was weak and, and cyclists back at that point in time used to, you know, race themselves into shape in the early spring classics. And uh, they tried doing that with Lance and he just broke down. And so, you know, the following year they had him not do that and just lay a real aerobic base. And then as it got closer to the tour, then start doing the hard, really hard stuff. And it was, it worked. And they, they, they were like, wow, groundbreaking. And I'm like, wow, that's what I did my whole career, you know? <laughs> um but then recently, it seems like uh, people have really focused more on just, you know, FTP and and kind of ratcheting right there at that FTP point on cycling and, and sort of a similar, you know, functional pace on your running. And, and so it, it, in some ways, some of it has taken a step backwards, in my opinion. Um, but it all, it all comes around. And it's, you know, it's even like the same thing with with diets, it's sort of like, uh, you know, in the early days when I was racing, it was, it was the Pritikin diet and everybody was eating rice cakes and bananas and oatmeal. And then all of a sudden they realized, wait a minute, you know, our bodies need protein and they need good fats and oils. And then, you know, now it's like the keto diet and, and, uh, you know, trying to get their body to burn fat. So they're not eating any 
any carbohydrate, but they're eating all this, all these fats and oils. And, you know, so in some ways, um, I like to look at what is, what has continued to prove itself over time and just latch on to those real basic principles because year to year, you know, our human genetics aren't changing, you know, the physiology today is the same as it was thousands of years ago. And so if you kind of look at how, let's say, our ancient ancestors stayed healthy and strong, you can see that, you know, you look at um, traditional societies that live on the land still today, you know, they, they every, basically everything they do is aerobic until they're, you know, hunting some game, at which point they might be really running really fast. And so, you know, and our whole bodies have this huge reserve of fat in them and only enough carbohydrate to go about 20 miles. So you can see that, you know, we're set up for endurance, meaning we're set up to be really efficient at slow to moderate intensities. We're really not set up to be super good at going really fast or very far at all. Um, in fact, you know, we're not much faster than there's a lot of things that are probably a lot faster than us. Even a squirrel can probably outrun you for, you know, 20 feet or whatever, but, um, that's a rather depressing thought. Yeah, but we are the best endurance animals on the planet. Um, that that has been proven. You know, they have the Western States 100, and the they have it for humans, and they have it for horses. And and the human record is a little bit faster than the horse's record. So let's talk about your record, Mark, and go down memory lane a little bit. I know you're used to doing this at this time of year. So, uh, which of your six Kona wins was your favorite? Well, there really were two. Um, you know, the, the 1989 race with Dave Scott clearly was one of the epic battles of all time because we were side by side for eight hours. And that was such a such an intimidating thing because he's he's one of those athletes that you 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 never feel like one nanosecond of mental weakness, like he's never going to give up. And so it was it was really hard to just be there right next to him, knowing that. I couldn't pull some little surge or trick that was going to make him go, I can't hang on. You know, he was, <laughs> he was going to be like a, you know, a towel in a bulldog's mouth. There's no way you're going to get that thing out. He's still uh, like that now. What's that? He's still like that now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, that's what made him who he is. Um, but anyway, um, that was amazing just because I had, you know, as you know, I had gone to the Ironman and raced it six times up mm -hmm. to, prior to 1989 and yep. I had I had zero wins Dave in 1989 had six wins and uh so to finally have the crown passed you know by pulling away in the closing mile and a half of the race was really just a uh, an amazing epic epic thing and, and obviously very satisfying and f fulfilling and, and touching and um but I would say uh, you know, the other race that might even top that, and it's a very personal reason why, was my final Ironman in 1995. I, you know, I had won five times. I had taken the year off prior in 1994 uh, because we had the birth of our son, and I just felt like my body was tired. I needed to give it a break. I wanted to be a father. Mm -hmm. And then finally in 95, I was ready to come back, and it was, um, I was 37 at that point. And nobody had won the Ironman as a 37-year-old mm -hmm. uh, at that point. Now there's been two guys who've won it at 38, Craig Alexander and Jan Frodeno. But 
so I, you know, if I could pull it off, I would become the oldest champion to date. Um, nobody had won six Ironmans and six starts. Uh, Dave Scott won six, but he lost one in there in between one of those. Uh, so going into it, I had these two levels of kind of impossibility facing me. And then just to make things really interesting, uh, I came off the bike 13 and a half minutes behind the leader, Thomas Hellriegel. Nobody had closed a 13 and a half minute gap to become the Ironman champion at that point in time. So here's my third level of impossibility. You know, you couldn't just Google, how do you win six and six wins and six starts that, that will be the oldest guy and close a gap of 13 and a half minutes on the marathon. How do you outrun a guy by 30 seconds a mile, every single mile to pull it off? And so I was, I was doing everything I could to just kind of keep my mental compass pointed in somewhat of a positive direction, but it's, it seemed completely impossible. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, the 13 and a half minutes, I thought that's that there's no way 30 seconds a mile. I thought there's no way. And then I thought, wait a minute, let me see if I can just make up an inch or a second, every step of this marathon. That was something I could wrap my brain around and, and that I could just commit to and, and head out of the transition area and try and do that. And, you know, I had done a lot of work with uh, over the years leading up to that with Brant Secunda, who teaches a, a, a way of life from the Huichol people in central Mexico. And they have a, a lot of practices that help you to uh, develop the ability to just like keep your mind quiet. And you know how that is, right? You're in a race and things are just going completely chaotic. You know, you come off the bike 13 and a half minutes behind a guy who's 13 years younger than you and you're trying to pull off a victory, that internal chatter can just be not so good, right? You know, like, ah, hell regal, he's so far ahead, I can't see him, he's going to win, I shouldn't have showed up this year, hey, there's my hotel, just call it a day, you know, everybody will understand. And so the work that I had done with Brant that year, especially, I had to call on that over and over and over, I had to just go, okay, there's that calm. Now I can remember what the focus is, make up an inch or a second, every step. And also the, you know, the Weichel people, they say it's never over until it's over. So just keep going because in the next moment, your life can completely turn around for you. And that really, you know, it's a very simple saying, I guess you could say, but that kept coming back to me over and over and over in the race. Every single time I was like, I, I just want to throw in the towel. And then I was like, wait a minute, take that next step, get my mind to be quiet. And there were hundreds of moments on that marathon where I just wanted to give up. It was so hard. And I was making up time with eight miles to go. I got a time split and I was four minutes behind Thomas Hellriegel, which meant that, yeah, I was closer. But in relative terms, I still had 30 seconds a mile every single mile of those closing eight to catch him at the finish line, which is not a good place to catch a guy who's 13 years younger for you than you when you are sprinting for the world championship. And so I, I just needed something else. And, you know, Brant also said that the, the big, before I left, he, he spoke with me quite a bit and did a lot of work to help me get ready. And he said, call out to the Island. If you need help, it's alive and it will hear you. And so I waited till at that point till, you know, cameras were a little bit away. I didn't want to have this on record. And I go, Big Island, help me. I'm going to give everything I have, but I need something extra. 
And then I just started in again. And the mile after that, after I said that, I made up about 40 seconds. And then the next mile, I made up about 50. And the mile after that, I made up about a minute and 15 on the guy who had been leading for over six hours. Hmm. And then finally, at mile 23, I made the final pass in my Ironman career and it stuck. And I went on and, and won that, that sixth title. But, it, you know, the one of the main reasons that that race had so much meaning to me was that there were so many moments where I could have just given up. And, you know, I would have only I would have been the only one who would have known it because I still would have finished and it still would have looked like I would, had given everything, but I would have known. And then I was able to pull it back together and just keep going, keep committed, keep engaged and give everything I had without any kind of guarantee that it was the day was going to end the way I'd hoped it would. And so, you know, I always tell people the greatest victories are the ones you can never see. And those are those victories we have over that lesser part of ourselves that does come up with excuses of uh, why it's not worth it or why I should just give in or maybe even quit. But every time you overcome those moments, it's also, it becomes something that's very empowering Mm -hmm. and it just fills you up with this energy because it's like, okay, yeah, I am doing this. You know, I am in this, I am going to do it. I am going to just give everything I have. And in the end, I really don't care how it turns out because I will know that I will have given the best that I had. And, you know, I, I went into that race uh, asking the big Island for one more great race. And in my ideal mind, you know, that, that last great race meant that I took the lead early and I held it and I was smiling the whole way. Well, that wouldn't have brought out the best in me. You know, the only way that the, I could have one more great race was to make it look so impossible that I had to go so deep inside of myself to find something that I never had before. But because of that, it really was one last great race. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Mark. So we're about halfway through the show. So uh, remind us, everybody at home watching, that uh, we want your questions. Don't be shy. Mark is here. He's being very honest, very candid, giving us all of his uh info and expertise so uh, don't be shy give us your questions but um in the meantime one of the questions we did have was what was the spark that made you want to do triathlon in the first place well it was a spark that that really probably a lot of people saw a moment that people saw it was the 1982 iron man um you know with the, the famous julie lamas kathleen mccartney uh one two finish well kathleen Julie won to finish. Um, and I had, ne- I was watching it on wide world of sports and I had never, I'd never seen the Ironman before. I had never, didn't even know what it was until Jim McKay was describing it in, in the beginning. You know, it's a 2.4 mile swim and a 112 mile bike ride in a marathon. And I thought, how many days do they have to finish this thing? You know, and then it's like, no, they got to finish it by midnight, 17 hours after they start. And I just thought there's no way a human body can do that. Um, But clearly, as I watched seemingly ordinary looking people cross that extraordinary finish line, I was just mesmerized. And about two weeks after that, I thought, I have to go there and see if I can be one of those finishers. And I I was 24 years old at the time. I had stopped uh, competitive swimming two years earlier. But, you know, I lived in San Diego and I was lifeguard most of the year and I had pretty active lifestyle. So it was easy to kind of pick back up the swimming part. I had a friend who was 
a real good cyclist and he took me down to a bike shop and we bought a used bike and he set me up and we went for a, uh, first ride was 35 miles and I got off the bike and my butt hurt so bad. I said, I said, I can't do this. There's no way I could sit on this thing for 112 miles. It's amazing what parts of your body have to adapt and get fit. And, um, you know, I had an old pair of running shoes and running's kind of, I'd never really ran, but you know, human beings, it kind of can come naturally. So I just was just training and doing it and went there in 1982 just to hopefully cross the finish line one time and then move on with my life. Um, amazingly though, I came out of the water in second place behind this guy, Dave Scott, who was, had, he was, he was there. Uh, he had, he'd won the race once and he was hoping for a second title that year. We were together at the turnaround at Javi and uh, we made the turn and we're heading back and we had about a five minute lead on the rest of the field. And finally, the, the tailwinds sort of stopped and we slowed down a little bit. And I had never talked to him before. And so I, you know, I was all excited. I'm like, so I pull up next to him. I'm like, hey, Dave, when we're done with the bike, you want to go for a run? And he looked over <laughs> at me like, who are you? You know, and I said my name and he grumbled something and he clicked his bike into big gear and he took off. And I thought, all right, conversation with the champs over. And so then I clicked my bike into big gear to, to follow him. And there was this huge racket and, and like gears breaking or something. And I looked down and a big chunk of my derailleur had broken off and my bike and my gear, my chain was stuck in the biggest gear. And I thought, ouch, well, my day's over, you know? And so I ended up actually having to hitchhike back into, um, into Kona town, you know, with fortunately a guy to pick up, took me all the way home. Uh, so my my initiation into the Ironman in 1982 sort of sort of set, set the stage uh, for a lot that was going to unfold in the future. First, Dave Scott and I were actually together uh, in that very first race. I also had a, a very challenging day because I didn't even achieve that dream of of crossing the finish line. But the bigger dream was born that day because I thought, you know what, I was with this guy for a few hours of racing. He ended up winning that day, having the fastest swim, bike, and run split on the day. And I thought, maybe if I stick with this, I can be the Ironman champion. If I take my time and I'm patient and I build year after year, maybe I can win this race. And so there, there was a lot wrapped up in that very first experience that was sort of like a foreshadowing of what was what was going to come. Yes, a lot of very challenging years, a lot of races where I was in the lead at the end of the bike, in the lead at the half marathon, in the lead with three miles to go, but every year falling apart and having that guy, you know, Dave Scott, another time rolling by me like I was standing still. But then eventually, you know, turning those six losses into lessons learned that I then used uh, as part of what got me to be the first one across that line six times in a row. Mm hmm. So in terms of the sport today, who do you think, who do you find in terms of pro athletes, who do you find to be exciting to watch? Who do you enjoy watching race? Oh, well, there's, there's a whole host of them. You know, I mean, I love, I love watching, uh, I loved watching Patrick Lange the year he broke uh, the marathon record uh, because he was, I was out there with the NBC camera crew and I was watching him just clicking off these miles and I thought, good 
God, he is running so fast and so smooth. And it, it turns out he he broke my record by whatever it was, maybe like just 15 seconds or something. And so I thought, I don't think I looked that fast, but I basically ran the same time, you know? So that was, that was kind of exciting. You know, I had that, the fastest run split for 27 years, which was like, okay, enough of that. But um, watching, time. what's that? That's quite some time. You no, know, I know. That was kind of a, a big run. Um, it was, it, it was really kind of, it was exciting watching Jan Frodeno last year because he was like, I don't even know how to describe it. He was like an orca killer whale. There was nothing anybody could do that was going to prevent him from winning that race. And I could just see it even the week before the event. I thought, good God, I'm glad I'm not racing him because I don't, I I couldn't, you know, I, I look at all the guys and I kind of vibe it out. And I think, you know, if I was in there, how would I race this one or that one or the other one? And how would it be? And I was looking at Jan before the race and I was like, Holy crap! He is, he's he he is just invincible this year, and, and that's the way it panned out. You know, set a world's record, broke Patrick's uh, previous world record, uh, re- kind of redeemed himself from two amazing uh, or uh, less than amazing years where he had really tough tough uh, events happen. You know, two years prior, his back seized up. The year prior, he he didn't even make it to the start line because he had a fracture in his hip. But um, so anyway, those two guys are pretty exciting. I, I love watching. Uh, Daniela race these past few years and just because she seems like she's just you know playing with the crowd until she gets past Javi and is coming back and then it's like okay girls time for me to go hope you have a good day that didn't pan out that way for her last year um I love I love watching Rinda Carfrey run you know for me there's when you see somebody just running with that fluid perfect form and stride Mm-hmm. During an Ironman in Hawaii, it's 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 almost otherworldly because you know the race wears you down and um, you're you're running nowhere near the speed that you could run if you were fresh, right? And so there's always a certain amount of laboredness in the way people look, even if it's still a good form and stride for Kona. But Rennie just takes it to a whole different level, and she just makes it look like she's. Like she didn't do anything. Like she was waiting in transition for the other gals to come in off the bike. And then she started a race. Right. She doesn't look like she swam and, and biked already. And so it's for me that I just love watching her run the way she does. You already touched on this just in, within that last answer. But one of the questions that we had from social earlier in the week was, where would you rank if you were racing in Kona this year? Or not this year, but you know, currently, presently. <laughs> in modern times, where would you rank <laughs> Well, you know, I would, I would hope that I would be just as competitive uh, with the guys now as I was with the guys back then. That I would say the main difference um, between then and and now is not necessarily that the guys are just dramatically faster, um, but more that there's a deeper depth of talent. You know, there's more guys who are faster. There's more guys who are clumped together. So like when I was, when I was competing, like in 1989, really there was only one guy in the race for me. And that was Dave Scott. Mm-hmm. You know, if I was racing now, there would be Patrick Longa, there would be Jan Frodeno, there would be Sebastian Keenly, there would be, you know, Bart Arnaud. So there's like, an, you know, there's just this massive list of talent 
of guys who are fully qualified to win that race. And, um, but yeah, I would, I would like to think that I could be just as competitive now with, with the boys as I was back in the day, but, uh, fortunately I don't have to find out. (laughs) (laughs) Good answer. So what do you do nowadays to stay fit and healthy? I know, cause I know you're, you're into surfing, right? You know, you're in Santa Cruz, so you've got the ocean on your back, back door. You, you still run, you still, you're into strength and conditioning. So yeah, tell us a little bit about your fitness regime these days. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, I, I'm 62. When I turned 50, that was kind of like a, the light bulb went on like, okay, I'm probably about, halfway through this journey called life, give or take. And so how do I want to, how can I sort of optimize my health between now and the end point? And how can I maybe keep that, that downward slide, push it as far out as possible? And I'm not talking about, uh, you know, peak performance fitness, but more just life, healthy health fitness. And so it's taken me about 12 years, but I really feel like I've finally in the last year or so hit on a rhythm that works as far as maintaining health, stability, uh, flexibility, uh, functional movement and and everything. So, um, and and part of it actually came because of COVID and I'll tell you why in a moment. But uh, so for example, my daily routine, um, like you said, I, most days I surf, if there's any kind of surf, I live two blocks from one of the main breaks here in Santa Cruz and actually just got out of the water right before this interview. Um, I do uh, strength training. I've been staying on top of that pretty much since I retired from competition. Um, I work with a great company now, Tonal. It's got a, a device that goes on the wall, and you can do all sorts of strength training moves with that. It's, it's super great. Uh, I help them actually to develop a couple triathlon strength training programs with that device. But anyway, that keeps just all of my joints and ligaments and tendons and muscles and everything strong. And then I've actually, because of COVID, uh, we had a, you know, I've been home, so I'm not traveling. Uh, We had a long stretch this year, a lot of stretches this summer where there was zero surf. And so it's like I had to do something Mm -hmm. in in addition. And so I started, of all things, I started started walking uh, and walking, but more like that real walking with purpose, you know, so you're not strolling, but you're actually using it as a workout. And I saw that, you know, when you actually do a, a good focused walk at a a fairly fast clip, you can be aware of the muscles that you're using and the muscles you're not. You know, when you're running, things are happening so quickly, sometimes it's hard to activate a muscle that you're not actually using. And so I'd had kind of little imbalances between my left and right side. As I was walking, I realized, wait a minute, I can feel what's not, I'm not using on the right. I got it to work. All of a sudden, both sides are equal again. And I, I thought, one day I thought, you know, they say you gotta walk 10,000 steps in a day to be healthy. And so, you know, I got my iPhone with a heart app on it and I walked my 10,000 steps and it took me three walks throughout the day because of splitting the time up. It took me forever to get that in. It was about five miles, which isn't that far, but it's like, wow, that was a workout. And so I just started walking more and feeling like super healthy and strong. And then I started incorporating some running into that. And then I was actually doing some runs. And a couple of weeks ago, I set a post racing world's record. I ran 14 and a half miles, uh, you know, all at once. It was very unimpressive. It was slow, but anyway, so 
You know, I just do uh, at least I try to do two things in a day. And that's something that has been really key. So in the morning, I'll I'll surf or whatever it is. And in, in the afternoon or early evening, I'll do something else, whether it's a strength workout or a walk or a run or I'm you know, I've been uh, doing a lot of rides on uh, Zwift um, I have one every Tuesday night for people, six o'clock Pacific time, one hour workout that I put together. So anyway, I'm just seeing that, you know, I, I was for a while doing one workout a day and that wasn't enough because let's say you work out an hour in the morning. Great workout. Good. Then you sit around for 12 hours. Not good. And so just breaking it up and having some workout in the morning and then something else in the afternoon or evening it seems like it um, supercharges the the positive in fitness impact of doing both of those things together. So it's not like you necessarily have to work out more time, uh, but more frequency. And that really makes a huge difference. Mm -hmm. So Catherine says, it's a pleasure to listen to your common sense advice and stories. And she also says, you look great for 62. So you've got a new fan here. <laughs> well, thank you. You know, I... I don't know. It must have been the makeup I put on today or something. I don't know. Yeah, I'll wear makeup the bottom <laughs> So, yeah. Um, a question from social we had earlier in the week. How do you turn your brain off when it's time to rest or nap? Uh, it, well, you just have to do it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, Thanks for that, Mark. Insightful. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if... Try to sort of maybe before you get in bed or right as you get in, in bed, sort of go over the things that you need to in your mind and then just let them go so that you don't have to work and process during your sleep or during your dreams with, you know, all, all the garbage of the day. You know, I try, I try to, I really try to have like a wind down, let's say at the end of the day, um, so that as I am getting closer to bed, I'm not jamming and looking on my computer and scrolling and scrolling and scrolling through all the social stuff. You know, do that earlier in the day when, when it's okay to have your brain really activated. And then as you get closer to bed, it's good to just kind of start letting it settle down. Um, and, and naps are really, really good. If you can take them, especially, you know, you do a really good workout, maybe it's on the weekends, so you can have the luxury of doing that have your lunch after you've had the workout and then just lay down for 20, 30 minutes, you know, and even just laying there quiet, it regenerates you. You know, your brain needs to regenerate and replenish just the same way that your muscles do. Right. And so that, that sleep thing is a very, that's a very big key to maintaining health and being able to recover and absorb the benefits of those workouts that you're doing. If you're, if you're getting, five or six hours of sleep a night and you're kind of dragging yourself around and you're, you're always waking up to that alarm to get up at four so you can get something in, you might need to modify that a little bit and see the impact. There was actually a research study that was done with um, college athletes in a number of different sports. And they, they took ones that they knew were not getting enough sleep and they had somehow they got them to get one to two more hours of sleep a night consistently mm -hmm. over a period of time. The improvement in performance for those who were doing aerobic stuff like, you know, running and swimming and cycling was greater than the expected improvement somebody would get from taking EPO. Wow. And sleep is legal. Yes. 
It's the legal drug. <laughs> okay, on that note, do you have any advice to a beginner triathlete? When, when somebody starts working with you, they're completely new to the sport. What does that look like? Talk us through what that looks like. Yeah, when you, when you get into the sport, there's a couple things that are, I think are great to do. One is to, for sure, uh, you know, find a coach or an advisor or a mentor, somebody who has experience in the sport so that they can just help you go through that learning curve of, you know, how do, you, how do I set up my bike? What do I need for a swim workout? What, what do the sets mean when the coach has given me these things? You know, how do I, how, how do I, how quickly can I go from ground zero to whatever my goal is? Uh, then the second thing is to tap into the community of triathletes in your area so that you, so that you find some training partners that, you know, it's fun to, it, it's good to train on your own periodically, but it's also fun to train with other people because it's, it really is social, you know, yeah. and it's, it, it ends up, you know, that your training partners become some of your best friends, even if that's the only thing you do with them, you know, it's like you love meeting them, you love going on those workouts with them. And um, so those are just two of the real basic things, you know, get a coach and, and tap into the community. Often you can do that in one spot with a triathlon club. If they have one in your area, most triathlon clubs have coaches and they have group workouts so that you not only get the guidance of a coach, but then you also, uh, you have that community of, of athletes that, you know, you're all showing up at the track on Tuesday evenings or whatever it is. Mm hmm one of the questions we had earlier in the week from social was uh, about older athletes, older age group athletes. And I know that's something that you're particularly interested in. Do you think older age group athletes peak or are there other ways to keep them improving? You can keep improving for a long time and, and how long you improve depends on when you started, you know? So if you start at 50, you can keep improving until you're, you know, whatever, 65 or maybe even longer than that. If you started in your twenties, like I did, you know, there's no way I'm improving on what I did in 1995. And so um, as older athletes, you know, there's your body does change. And so there's some adaptations that you have to maybe think about doing. One of them is that older athletes cannot absorb the same amount of consistent weeks of speed work that a younger athlete can. Mm -hmm. So if you try to go to the track just as many weeks in a row as your 25-year-old son or daughter, you know, you're going to, and you're 65, you're going to, you're going to pay the price. Um, so, but older athletes get a lot of benefit out of aerobic training. They get a lot of fitness more than an, a younger athlete will out of doing good aerobic blocks of training. Second thing you will definitely want to do is to incorporate speed work so that your, your muscles, your muscle mass stays on there. Uh, you, you, you can build lean muscle at any age. Another thing that's also important is as you get older, <clears throat> your body gets less efficient at utilizing dietary protein to help rebuild your muscle. So as, as, you, as you get older, you've just got to actually eat more protein to stimulate your body to regenerate and rebuild the muscle when you're doing your, your training. Another thing that happens with older athletes is that they get less sensitive to being dehydrated. So you, you've got to kind of be more aware of your hydration just so that you make sure you stay on top of it and that you, that you are not getting uh, like, you know, maybe even just a low grade um, dehydration. Another thing for all, all you old folks, you got to get sleep. Sleep is golden at every age, but especially as you get older. Um, and that's not, 
always an easy thing because a lot of people, as they get older, their sleep gets a little more disrupted. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, try to make it a kind of a focus and try to get that earlier to bed than late to bed thing. You know, that, the, the early, the, that sleep before midnight or one in the morning is, can be a lot better for your body as far as regeneration than if you go to bed at one. Mm-hmm. So, Okay, so a reminder to everybody at home that we have less than 10 minutes left. Less than 10 minutes left with Mr. Mark Allen. So uh, fire us your questions if you've got any burning questions left to ask him. But uh, in the meantime, we'll keep going with our questions that we have from social. Which, one of which was, where do you see the biggest room for improvement in the pro field? Swim, bike, or run? Well, it's interesting. That's a good question. You know, I... I think maybe one of the biggest improvements that can be made still is, is in the run. Um, partly because of some of the shoe technology that's coming out now, you know, as it becomes more available, um, the shoes are just faster. So that, that's one thing. And, uh, but I think, I think cycling technology, you know, it's going to be, increasingly more difficult to uh, improve on the aerodynamics and things that they've developed in the equipment uh, up to this point. They'll keep working on it. You know, they'll still come up with materials that you can make your kit out of that mm-hmm. are cool, but also more aerodynamic, break up the the, the airflow and make it smoother. Um, but yeah, I think, I think actually all three sports are, they're pretty dialed in now. You know, it's, I don't, I don't know if any one of them is going to make a huge jump over the other ones, but if I, I would, I would say maybe the run. And, and another reason I say the run is that since the run is the third event in the race that mm-hmm. requires uh, when things, the difference between good and let's say, let's take an Ironman. The difference between a good swim and a bad swim is going to be a couple minutes. The difference between a good bike and a bad bike might be 10 minutes. The difference between a good run and a bad run can be an hour and a half. Mm-hmm. And so as things improve, little incremental improvements happen on the swim and on the bike, that sets you up to have even greater improvements on the run. If you get off the bike and you're fresher, mm-hmm. if you get off the bike and you're more fueled up, you know, like in the in the Tour de France this year, there was a lot of talk about um, the athletes uh, taking ketones so that, you know, the body was using ketones for energy and that preserving the carbohydrates for those last last bits of, of the stage. Maybe there's going to be something like that in, in triathlon because triathlon is more endurance oriented, you know, and so maybe the athlete's going to be using ketones, which means that if they have more fuel all along the way, it's going to show up with the greatest improvement on the run because, like I said, good to bad on a run is a huge, huge difference. Hey, Pablo wants to know, what benefits do you find of racing short distances when you're preparing for a 70.3 or an Ironman race? I think it's extremely important to do that. And the reason is that um, if all you're doing is long stuff and sort of steady stuff and, and not super fast, fast stuff, your body gets into kind of a rut. And if you break it up with very focused uh, speed work and very focused short distance races, that high intensity training and racing raises your VO2 max much more than steady state or maybe even that moderately anaerobic kind of work that a lot of athlete, triathletes do. 
So if you do that super high end uh, training periodically, that super high end racing periodically, it raises your VO2 max, which is your body's ability to get in oxygen quicker. Mm -hmm. As that goes up, you get in more oxygen per minute, which not only enables you to go faster at the high end, but it also enables you to burn more fat for fuel, which is super, super important in a long distance race, like an Ironman. Mm -hmm. uh, when I raced, I would do, um, in the winter, I would do a lot of longer stuff, and then I'd start to incorporate speed work. And then the first block of races during the year were longer races, like uh, the Nice Triathlon, which was about a six-hour event. Then in the middle of the summer, I cut out all of that long stuff, and I really dialed in some pretty serious speed work, and I did uh, just Olympic distance racing. So then I got that big block of super fast, high-intensity training and racing. And then the end of the summer, then I built back up with the endurance, getting ready for Kona. And I think it was because of that that I had this real uh, well-rounded, well-balanced um, overall fitness physiology and capabilities in my body. If you're just focused on one or the other, you're going to be missing a certain amount of uh, potential. Mm -hmm. Okay, Mark, last question before we wrap up for today. But who do you think would have won Kona this year? men and women? Boy. Um, well, I think, I think Jan would have been tough to beat. Um, you know, I always, <laughs> I always kind of default to that. Like who won last year? Uh, <laughs> because, you know, when they win, they look yeah, invincible, right. you know, and, but he, you know, what little bits of, uh, photos and different things I saw on social this year, he, he still looked pretty darn strong. Mm -hmm. So I probably would have had to give him the, the top nod on that. And for the women, I would think that uh, Annie Haug would have had a hard time repeating just because Daniela would be coming back and she probably would be healthy and she knows how to dial it in for that race. And I think it would have, it, it would have been a really interesting matchup. Let me put it that way, because clearly, uh, you know, winning last year, she did it on the run, uh, faster runner than Daniela, but Daniela is just so incredibly strong on the bike. It would have been a very, a very interesting matchup. I think I would, again, sort of, I would have actually maybe bet against the last year's champ there in the women's field and, and given the nod to Daniela. What about a little bonus question here of who do you think will win next year? Oh, geez. Well, let's see, you know, Keep in mind, you know, everybody's going to be two years older next year than the last time they raced Kona. And so, you know, Frodo is going to be, he's going to be pushing 40, I guess, right? Uh, yeah. Tim, Tim O'Donnell just turned 40 a couple of days ago. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you've you, you got these old, old guys who are still uh, going to be going for it. But there's going to be a whole bunch of guys who in it under under wraps of COVID have made huge strides in their training that nobody got to see this year. Right. And and so I, I think Kona's a crapshoot next year. At least right now. You know, once once the season gets going and we start to see results come in, I think it'll be clear like, ooh, wow, that guy or that gal really made they made the jump that it's gonna take. Yep. Yeah, like you say, everybody's under wraps, almost in hibernation. Yeah. Okay. That is all we have time for today. Thank you very much for joining us. We do appreciate your time and expertise and experience. And uh, we look forward to seeing you next year in Kona, hopefully. 
And uh, thank you very much. Hey, my biggest pleasure. We'll see you in Kona 2021. Thanks, Mark.